What's up? What's up? Garage Door Peeps. This is Ryan with Torsion Talk Podcast. And today we do have a little bit of a curveball. Um, I've invited my dad onto the podcast. If you're listening to this, I decided to go ahead and post it. There is a small chance this may never see airtime, but that's okay. Um, I'm actively uh, putting in the verification code for my Google My Business because I got a postcard in the mail today. So uh, that is complete. So we can rock and roll. Multitasking, multitasking, what? I can't let it just sit around. So my dad, hey, say hello to everybody. Hey, deplorables. I'm super excited to be here with you guys today. Um, when I was on Facebook not too long ago, I was tracking you guys and was always having my finger on the button. So when my wife came by, I'm like, <laughs> she can't see me. <laughs> but, you know, I love it because, you know, I get the feeling like, you know, like when you're in the Army and you're out in the field and you're in Iraq or Afghanistan somewhere, you know, everybody's just nasty. And, it, you know, it's just guys doing stuff. And um, you know, I don't know why people that don't cuss cuss when they go downrange and stuff, but – you know, it's just like, I think, I thought about it, and I think it's just like, well, hey, I might die tomorrow or tonight, so, you know, um, God forgive me. Yeah, so um, my dad actually is the one who, I don't even know, how how did you find the Deplorables group on Facebook anyway? You, you sent it to me. Oh, I sent it to you? I thought you sent it to me. Oh, originally? Yeah. I may have. It was a while ago. Yeah, I sent you, a, I sent you an invite. But you originally found it and was like, hey, did you yeah. know about this? Okay. And it was a Garage Door Tech Deplorables group. <laughs> Somehow you were, I guess, searching deplorables or something. That came I don't around. know how, probably. I don't know. So anyway, um, yeah, so I remember getting a text from my dad saying, hey, um, you know, this is a shout out to the deplorables group. Even though not everybody that listens is in the deplorables group, uh, everybody knows I got a little bit of love for all the people in there. Um, so we um, – my dad shot me a text with a screenshot or something about the deplorables group. And, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't even part of any of the Facebook groups at that time. And now there's like 50,000 garage door Facebook groups and I'm in all of them. And like you literally, it's a full-time job trying to keep up with all the topics and stuff going on. There were that many, but wow. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, and they're pretty active. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's pretty cool, and it, it a lot of the groups are pretty tight. There's some anal people too that just get on everybody's nerves. There always is, yeah. Yeah, um, everybody thinks they're the best at what they do, and everybody else that does it differently is like wrong, you know. And so uh, I like to say there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think there's more than way way to do a door and, and et cetera. And I know. Um, yeah, people get too serious about it, I think. Um, since I've got my dad here, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit uh, about him and allow him to do some of the introduction himself because he could probably do it better than me. Uh, but as far back as I can remember, um, and even probably can't remember, my dad's been in the military. Uh, my dad's also been pretty up to date with all current events as far as the government and stuff. Um but the one thing that I know um, is my dad's uh, definitely made a huge sacrifice in his life to to serve our country, and he's done a good job of it. Um, he uh, he, I don't know. You want to tell a little bit about 
uh, your rank, what your responsibilities have been, and kind of some of the things that you, how yeah, many tours I, you've been on? I'll do it real quick. Um, so, yeah, I'm also all my time has been National Guard time. I joined the National Guard 1981. Yeah, I'm an old guy. That was um, two years after I was born. 81? Yeah. No. I was born in 79. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've been uh, – so I was in the Guard for like uh, six or eight years the first time. I've got two careers in the Guard. Um, I was a commissioned infantry officer the first go-round. Got out for like 11 years, and then 9-11 happened. And then not long after 9-11 happened, I got wind that the uh, – 40th Brigade here in Georgia is going to deploy. And I'm like, well, I got to get in on that. So much to your mom's chagrin, I I signed up. And uh, they wouldn't give me my commission back, so I came back in and enlisted. Uh, first go-round again, I was an infantry officer, all infantry, mechanized infantry. And then when I came back in, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do the infantry stuff anymore because I'm, like, too old for that. So um, what before you go any further – Give give those who aren't very familiar with infantry what is infantry. So yeah, just basically a sh- you're just basically a eleven Bravo, which is a bang banger shooter. Call them eleven bang bangs, but yeah, you're just basically master of a rifle or some kind of weapon system on a on a track vehicle or a wheel vehicle of some kind um, until you get into like artillery and tank stuff. But you know Bradleys and MRAPs and stuff like that. Fifty cal, I think, is probably oh, the largest. So, did you get to shoot a fifty cal? Isn't it? Yeah, that's what is that like? You get a chubby man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, you got this big gun, and it shoots like I don't know, forget what the you know, but you're shooting like a mile. Things like almost a mile away, and especially fun at night when you got tracers going. Yeah. So, because you know when those things ricochet, they just go way up in the air. So, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like I saw a meme of some dude teaching his daughter how to shoot a gun in the backyard. And he had like uh, this, I think it was shared in one of the garage door groups, but he had this like, um, uh, what do you call them? The, the paper um, so targets. He had a paper target and it was like put up on his back fence. And then there was like almost no backyard and then a house. And this little girl sitting there with like a AR, like t- aiming down. But teaching my daughter how the safety, like how to shoot safely. And everybody's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what about the house on the other side of the fence? So when I think about shooting a 50 caliber, I'm like, okay, this bullet's going to go a yeah. mile. If I'm not accurate, we're taking out everything behind it. Well, typically it, they're hard to aim because they're so powerful. And you're not like looking down the barrel. Right. It's down so, closer yeah. toward like so the middle of your chest. Basically, walk the rounds into your target is the way they the best way to do it so i mean especially that's why you have tracers so you can see the rounds hitting the ground and so basically your left or right or try to start out below or be even if you're shooting a high you can always bring it down have you ever been on the other end of a 50 caliber round no. that would be scary but when i was in officer's candidate school at fort benning 100 years ago we uh they took us down in the woods and they put us in an underground bunker that had like a two-foot plexiglass window on it. And they said, we want you to experience what it's like to be shot at by a 50 caliber? No, by <laughs> 155 artillery and 105 artillery. 
Okay. Yeah, that'll make you pucker factor go to double off real quick. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, it's it's the closest they could do to make you understand what it felt like to have artillery dropping down on top of you, literally. Yeah. <clears throat> but so that was scary. That was fun for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you're like, you know, is that glass thick enough? Yeah. Thing, you know? So, yeah, I'm trusting I, you that you're trusting this glass. Like, well, I remember <laughs> coming out of the bunker and one of the uh, training NCOs reached down and picked up a piece of shrapnel. And it was probably about, you can't see it, but it's probably about eight inches long. It was flat and it had really jagged edges on it. And he said, you see this? It'll, this cut man in half in like no time because the shrapnel's traveling at, I don't know, thousand miles an hour or something. Yeah, that's crazy. A second. Whatever. All right, so so we got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but you were infantry, and then what? Yeah, so I so I got out um, because I was about to get command of a unit, and uh, I was doing IT stuff at the time, doing consulting. I was making good money. Um, and when you're when you're a captain, when you're a, a commander of a, a guard unit, it, it's not one week in a month. It, it's a lot, yeah. a lot of time. So, and y- you may have a unit that's three or four hours from your house, even though in the same state. So. Um, so I was faced with it. I had to make a decision one way or the other. So I thought, well, you know what? I was always doing a guard thing kind of part-time. But now it's got to the point where it's not going to be, and I have to make a decision which career I'm going right. to take. I was doing pretty good at the IT stuff. I think there was a big future in that. So I resigned my commission. Um, so This you know, was fast, the second time? Yeah, so fast forward second time, 11 years later, I said I looked, was looking at MOS's military occupational skills, and I saw the counterintelligence. And I'm like, oh, that'd be fun. You kind of, you know, it's kind of like a cop, but not. And fortunately, I never really worked in a field office, which is what traditionally you do, because a lot of your army posts have um, counterintelligence field offices to investigate things like, you know, somebody sitting outside the gate with a camera taking pictures of people coming and going in the front gate or something like that. Yeah. Um, but all of my time, fortunately, was tactical. Like I say, I went to school. Fort Huachuca right before uh, we deployed. And then when I got on the ground there, I I got sent down to uh, Camp Falcon, which is just south of Baghdad. To I was attached to the uh, 3rd ACR. And those guys were awesome. Um, they were my infantry. They had my back any time we went out and did stuff. So, um, I mean, at this point, how old are you, roughly? 45, 46. So here you are, this old dude. Yeah. Average age on the teams probably. Oh, they were kids, yeah. Twenty so something. I think I had one guy that was like in his late twenties. So did they push you around in a wheelchair, or were you able to keep up? They wanted to sometimes. <laughs> Dude, I kept up. <laughs> I'm sure you did. I know you were fit back yeah. then. I mean, don't forget, I did an Ironman at 56. Yeah, you're pretty. I mean, I mean, I couldn't do an Ironman now, and I'm 41. So, yeah. but yeah, so the Karen Selden stuff was just it was awesome, and it was a it was a fun job. Is um, you know, we actually do got to do some some source operation stuff in Iraq. So basically, we recruited and solicited people to come in and give us information, basically. And um, we had what they call wall calls, where people would basically just come up to the base and you know knock on the door, stand in line, go through security because they knew by the time we got there that how CI worked. Yeah, and they knew there were people there that. And, of course, a lot of them were looking for money because some of our good people we would pay because, you know, they, they risked their life and they would bring us some good information. But sometimes they would just shop around base to see if they could flip somebody new in country 
didn't know what they were doing to say, hey, I got all this good information. And then, you know, you sit down with them for an hour and a half, take notes, and you get all this information. And then you walk into the chow hall and look at CNN or something, and the, the guy on CNN saying the same thing the guy just told you. Mm. So you just realize you got an hour and a half of information you could have got off CNN. <laughs> yeah. You just got played. That's the best information CNN's ever had. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, that was fun. So I so I did um, so I, I did Iraq once as guard. Uh, went back a year later as a contractor. And I did a, a – What were you – like when you went back as a contractor, what were you – I did similar I, stuff? So I was what they call CI support. So – we just didn't go outside the wire and do stuff. It was, it was mostly, um, you know, on the base stuff. Uh, because we're contractors here, you know, unless you were like, um, unless you were pulling personal security, for, you know, there's not a whole lot of contractor guys went outside the wire. And then those were all, you know, ex-SF guys that were just cashing in on being able to shoot without rules of engagement. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were, <laughs> they were highly trained guys and they just didn't want to, I guess, put up with the stuff that, Crap, the military yeah. they could make three times as much. I hear that a lot. Like when I meet people that were had rubbed shoulders or within special forces, like they get offered big money to go to these private military firms oh, yeah. and be contract killers, basically. Yeah. And they don't have the same rules of engagement. But what's interesting is, is the government's funding these private military to go over there. And you got American soldiers in both the military and the private military, but the rules are completely different. And these guys are at no disadvantage and and the American soldiers are at a complete disadvantage because they have all these rules of engagement they have to abide by, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, I'm not, I don't have like firsthand knowledge of it, but yeah, some of the, some of the contractors, um, (laughs) some of the contractors, uh, I think their rules of engagement were, you know, and you probably read there's some contractors actually um, got charged with some crimes or shoot yeah, I think I heard stuff. about that. But, you know, you know, when you're in a situation like that, it's like... Um, I find it very interesting anybody can be charged with murder in war. Yeah, it, it's... Well, you know, it, it, it's it's really easy, as I say, to Monday morning quarterback a situation like that. But when you're trying to protect somebody, mm-hmm. um, it, it could easily just go the opposite way. And then you could be in a, you know, what storm. Yeah. And trying to defend not only yourself and your in your team, but the person you're trying to pull security for. I'm interested about your trip to camp. Was it Camp Scorpion? Oh, last year. Yeah. So this is was that the one that was right near the airport? Did I get that right? No. No. Okay. So I'm, I'm maybe I got them confused. Uh, I get them all confused. I don't really know much about any of them. But so what was your trip to court Camp Scorpion like? Um, it was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Now, Camp Scorpion's Afghanistan? Yeah, it's Afghanistan. It's just outside of um, Kabul. And um, How many times have you been to Afghanistan? <clears throat> three? Um, yeah, three times, I think. And then um, one gig I did supporting the uh, Air Force Office's special investigation, I... Made a couple of trips in. They were like three week trips. So you've been you you did what one or two tours to Iraq? Two, two, and then three to Afghanistan. Well, I did. Some I did. were contracts. Some were yeah. deployments. Well, so all my work in Afghanistan was 
um, contract. Contract. Okay. And then you spent some time in. Um, We're not going to talk about the last one I did on my own. <laughs> Are we not allowed to? No, I don't want to talk about that one. Okay. So, uh, but you ended up spending a little bit of time near uh, Syria too? Yeah, Turkey. Yeah. How was that? Uh, so you talk about rules of engagement. Yeah. So I, I can't say a whole lot about it, but, you know, let's just say that it was uh, it was weird because of the previous administration and the group I was supporting, Special Forces Group, was maybe two calls away from the POTUS. Mm. So there wasn't a whole lot of red tape I going on. Yeah. Um, which was it was the first time I'd you know been exposed to that, but it was uh, <coughs> it was just it was just different because we weren't quote unquote air quote supposed to be in Syria. <laughs> yeah, but you and guys weren't. You were in Turkey. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it's open source anyway. But I mean, you know, we were we were trying to you know arm the. No, if I got the timeline correct, that was around the same. Is that around the same time that we? Bombed Syria. Um, I don't, I don't know that. So I don't know that we were overtly <laughs> bombing Syria then. I don't know really. I don't. Um, but yeah, we were just supporting some of the uh, some of the groups in Syria that we had qualified as being legit, mm. which we think are legit. Yeah, that's that's another story. So I know a lot of people talk about, um, you know, I'm reading. Um, I just read Extreme Ownership and um, Jock Willick and his co-author. I got his name. Let me pull it up. For those of you guys who haven't read uh, Extreme Ownership, strongly, strongly recommend. But him and I'm probably going to say this wrong. Leif Babin. Um, they do, I'm, I do the audio books and, and it's just hardcore. Like they're sitting there breaking down like engagement where like, okay, we had to, you know, we were doing a, a routine this and we bumped into this and then they go into like, all right, I had a unit over here and then I had snipers on a rooftop and he's going into like the whole battle. I'm getting shot at, I'm having to check on my guy and he's talking about rules of engagement and stuff like that. Um, so did you ever get in a position when you were outside the wire where you got in kind of like a gun battle? Um, yeah, so I just want to make it clear. So I, I didn't I didn't like – I wasn't like a SF guy, special right. ops guy. I supported them from an intel perspective. So all of my, all of my gigs with supporting the special forces and – the off, uh, Air Force OSI, uh, they were all basically, I was either doing, um, you know, intel and analyst work, analyst work or I was, um, you know, providing them information, review, uh, reviewing dossiers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, it was just support. But, I mean, some of the coolest things you can do from that perspective is to sit in a room and watch, a, you know, a UAV feed. Uh, you know something going down, and you see that you see all the sports forces guys just yeah. wipe the whole area. Well, you see clear. them, you know, just kind of walking into the <laughs> area and you know doing their breaking their teams and yeah. you know setting up positions and 
stuff like that. And, that, and a lot of times, you know, um, a lot of times soft guys will just go in to observe. You know, they'll go in and lay low just to, you know, track a bad guy or activity or something like that, and then pull out. And the local people will never know they've been there, but it's the way it's supposed to work. So Jocko talks about how he supported a lot of like army forces. Um, like let's say for instance, the army needed to get to a particular place in a very bad neighborhood that was heavily um, controlled by, you know, a, a terrorist organization. So they would bring in Jocko's, I think he calls them seal team three or whatever into uh, their team to kind of co-integrate and help them get to their destination. Um, was there a lot of that where you had like military forces helping each other out where you had like maybe army and special forces, Navy? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would be, a, it would probably involve a pretty active village or some, some place that there was a, what they call a high value target. Um, I mean, typically, you know, Delta and SEAL team would go in and take care of that business. I mean, because this happened to me, right? So I'm, I'm in Iraq. I've got this guy that's giving me really good information. I'm, it was <coughs> collecting on a lot of guys over in uh, Al-Rashid, over near the uh, the Tigris River. And uh, we were getting some good stuff. was writing, reporting. My hires just were like, oh, we need more, we need more. And then I got up one morning, my Iraqi cell phone rings, and it's this guy that had been giving us the information on these guys. He goes, "Hey, man, great job! You you got all you you got them all, I think." I'm like, "What?" So he's like, "You didn't know?" I'm like, "Well, uh, yeah, you know." But anyway, he's trying to tell me that. Well, so I went into the office and talked to DS2, which is like the intel guy. I said, "So what happened?" He looked at me and kind of shook his head. He goes, "Some task force came in last night and picked up all our guys." And I said, I'm trying to reach out to them now to, to let us know what went down, who they got, and that kind of. Because I mean, my my concern was, well, if they didn't get somebody, do I still need this guy to tell me to track the guys they didn't right. get? They never called back. <laughs> they, that's what they do. I mean, they just you know, and, and you know, you hear this all the time when you're like a low level guy like I was. It's like, yeah. you know, if you get somebody that's really good giving you good information. You're probably going to have some guy from the agency or somebody show up at your door in your office and saying, "Yeah, we, we're taking this guy now. Give me, give me his dossier. We'll take over from here, and that you won't see him again." But I had one guy that you know got picked up just before I left Falcon, Bob Falcon, that got picked up by the special forces guys that were working in the area, and he loved it. He loved it. He, really? You know, yeah, and they loved him. He was doing <laughs> good work, and. Um, well, he talks about, Jocko talks about, like, um, having to work with, like, Iraqi soldiers uh, when they're training them. And, and uh, he tells one story about how he was uh, telling his crew, hey, listen, we're going to go on a joint mission. And his crew's like, no, bro, no. Like, we're better off by ourselves. And he's, he's, he explained, like, he, he, didn't ha- he didn't give them a choice. But he explains, like, I understood where they were coming from. Because it wasn't uncommon for us to have a line, a strong line, and an Iraqi soldier get scared, turn around and run while shooting behind him, 
where where he's like we're the first line that yeah. he's shooting at right like hello <laughs> you know so i mean you got to you I know we went into Iraq and we tried to train their soldiers to, pr- to protect their own selves. Um, and then, you know, there's all kinds of rumors about all the weapons we left and everything else that got picked up by all the, the terrorist groups. Yeah. And then we went into Afghanistan. I think we did something very similar where we tried to train up uh, their military and try to get them up to speed. Do you feel like that is beneficial? Does it work? I mean, it seems to have worked a little bit in Iraq, right? So because of the mission and what we were telling the public about why we were there, yeah, I mean, it, you, you have to do it. But whoa, whoa, whoa. can't just sidestep that one right there. So, well, I mean, you know, you s- now, now you were over there. So we get a lot of pressure for Bush putting U.S. troops, you know, Bush said it was because of what he was saying. We need to go to war for. To protect yeah, so our country, right? So I went like to Afghanistan for Bin Laden, right? Yeah. Dry hole. He wasn't there. Yeah. So while we stayed there, what, 17, 18 more years or more? I couldn't tell you. I have my opinions, but I'm not going to say it here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing like tin hat stuff, but um, there's a lot of people making a lot of money during those, those times. And, you know, yeah, so, I mean, but we were, you know, Special forces, that's what they do most of the time. That's prime their mission more times than not is training indigenous people. Yeah. Been doing that for ever since, you know, the first Green Bray guy put his hat, put his bray on. So Knowing that there's a possibility that we might have to fight that person later. No. No. I mean, you know, we I mean these guys aren't getting flipped to go to, you know, Oh, well, that, that's that's a huge risk, right? Yeah. So these guys go back to their village. Yeah. And they go back to the village and search and comes, knocks on the door and says, hey, you need to tell me everything you know about. Yeah, or we're going to kill your with. family. Oh, we're going to kill your family. You know, and they might already have half his family stowed off somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, and then they come back to, to camp the next day where all the Americans are and, you know, you I mean, that's, know that's what happened to some of the OSI guys in, in, in Iraq. They, one of their guys told him, said, hey, uh, I need to meet with you kind of thing. And, you know, he made it sound like real important. Basically what happened is the insurgents had, had flipped him. Mm. And they wanted him to kill the OSI guys. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. At risk of his own life, I'm sure. Yeah. And they said, well, then if you're not going to do it, you have to help us do it. So uh, that was pretty screwed up. So, yeah, yeah. that's kind of what. You know, I did is I tried to find those guys and see if they were doing anything squirrely and often were they going home? How long were they staying? You know, and when they come back from that place, you're, they're supposed to be screened again. Yeah. And who did you come in contact with? Did anybody ask you about who you work for? That kind of thing. And, you know, whether good liars or not, that's something you have to detect as well. Yeah. So if you're on a base, uh, is it common to get, like, mortared, or for yeah. them to attack, it is. Yeah. So it just kind of becomes a way of life. When I went back to Iraq as a contractor second time, I'm thinking, well, it's been a year. You know, things kind of calmed down. I was on <laughs> Camp Liberty, I think, um, when I got back, and I was in a, uh, you know, I had a trailer to myself, a little trailer, <coughs> and I was. They have these, um, what do they call them? I don't know what the technical word. They used to call them air stat balloons. 
they're balloons that are tethered to the ground and some big crank they got this huge heavy gauge heavy gauge wire that, that keeps them tethered and they have all kind of cameras and stuff on them and but that's an aiming stake for anybody with a mill around yeah so yeah i mean deck you just you know you're supposed to like run outside and go into a bunker and stay there until they all clear you don't know when something's going to hit before you get to that bunker. And right. it depends on if that bunker's not like right outside your door, you're just better off not going anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, the first phase is, you know, <coughs> you <coughs> crawl into your bed, put your vest on, your helmet on, like your bed's some big bunker <laughs> protector of things. It's a little in bit. Your, in your aluminum trailer. Yeah. Right. And then after a while, it gets to the point where it's just, you know, you just put, kind of pull the covers over your head or put the pillow over your head. But the, the, the thing that messed with me the most, the kind of the PTSD part of it, was it was they have these what they call big voices, which are huge um, speakers on the base. And then they have the, um, the big gun, the 20-millimeter gun that shoots off the platform or something. I don't know the right name, but anyway. So that's attached. So there's a tracking mechanism. So... A lot of times they can intercept the trajectory of something coming onto the base, and if it's coming like within fifty, you hear that? No, you, you, if it comes within, it's, if it's supposed to land within, I think it's like fifty meters of where you are. The loud voice comes on, and it's two o'clock in the morning. You're sound sound asleep, and then all of a sudden you hear incoming, 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 and you just like shoot up, you know, because it's really loud. Yeah. And then you hear the gun go off, and then you hope it hits it. If not, and the gun doesn't go off, then you're like, oh, crap. And then you're just waiting for impact then. So That sucks. It will, yeah, it does. And you, you got to live there, and it's like, and when that happens, if you're on a 12-month tour and you're on your first month, you're like, yeah, and that happens I got I got 11 times. more months of this, and, and my odds. A couple, three times a week. I was, I literally, I'd, and that's when Evie was born, right? Yeah. And I was shell-shocked as heck, but. When Evie was born, I held her. All that went away. It yeah. just went completely away. So <laughs> that's yeah. why that's why I love Evie, and I feel like we're close. Well, I, I hope just, you love her because she's your granddaughter. Yeah, I know, but, but yeah, she's she's. Uh, I she just feel like I got a storm. different bond with her. You know. Yeah. I'm not trying to slide Asher away. He's no, I get a it. Beautiful kid too. I yeah. love him to death. He's you know just a, she she helped me through that period, and she didn't even know she did it. Right. So yeah, and they say that like dogs do the same thing a lot of times for soldiers that come back, you know, like they come back and get a puppy, they encourage you to get a dog. Yeah. And, you know, that, that intimacy of holding the dog and just kind of. Well, they, they get to the point where you, well, I mean, Milo's done that, right? My little dachshund. Um, it was a couple of years ago, I was sitting in a chair and I was getting all spun up about something. And he was sitting on the, his dachshund sit on the top of the chairs. Yeah. He was sitting on the chair behind me. And he came and just got in my face and started licking my face. And most dogs can sense that kind of stuff just yeah. naturally if you're if you if you're bonded with them, I think. Um, and Milo was never trained to do that. And then he got his own issues with seizures and stuff. But yeah, he was able to sense that. So, so as close as you and I are, we've never really had these conversations for whatever reason. I don't know if it's just I've tried to respect our boundaries and not ask and you don't normally volunteer a lot of information. So I feel this is pretty cool that we're talking, but I also see that it's a little bit emotional for you too. 
Yeah, it um, can be. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the good stuff that comes out of it. it I, I commonly heard you talk about sometimes, um, you know, almost feeling the need to go back and help protect soldiers um, or like um, the bond that you had with those guys over there wanting to go back and, and be a part of that. Tell me a little bit about that relationship and what that's like to be part of a group of dudes that's, you know, all living together 24-7 and kind of watching each other's back. It, it's definitely a bond. And, it, it, you know, it, of course, and with the intel community, it's guys and girls, which is something your mom struggled with. <laughs> yeah. Because, sure. you know, um, those a lot of those girls went through the same stuff I went through. And, you know, they were places that got mortared and shot at and whatnot, too. And they came back with the same same issues, but you know they're like sisters to me, and just like the guys are brothers. And yeah. I'm still, you know, one of the kids that's on my team. He and I still talk. Um, we check in on each other once every once in a while. And yeah, there's just, you know, it's just like kind of like being on a football team for four years, you know, and you know training with the same guys day in and sweating your fanny off, uh, and doing stuff like that. Yeah, I mean it's very similar. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, being an intel weenie, you just you, – you do feel like you're helping in the fight, even though you're not always going outside the wire. I mean, yeah, and, and like I say, the uh, – I would bet this guys in the field probably feel very strongly about that. Yeah, well, I mean, first time I went to Iraq, I, I went outside – I was outside the wire a lot. I mean, they um, – we replaced two reservists that were <laughs> um, – less to be desired. They had kind of put all their people they were talking to on ice. So when I came in there, and I didn't know what I was doing, it was my first deployment. Right. Um, and, and nobody on my team had been deployed before, so we were, we were guard. So was this like early 90s? Uh, this was 2005. Okay. Seven. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got over there in May. We got last, yeah, after like end of May, first of June, we got flown down there. The good thing about it was I was detached from my guard unit, which was still trying to figure stuff out. It was a mess. Yeah. And I went to, um, well, I guess it was a good thing. So I went to Fob Falcon where uh, 3rd ACR was, and uh, they were pretty awesome. They were a bit leery about three guard guys coming in there to handle their intel stuff. Yeah. But we we did good work, and uh, Colonel Todasat, we actually got um, kind of the honorary, um, what is it, the spurs? I forget, it's been a long time, sorry. Because, yeah, so the cab guys all wear spurs and, and, you know, western Stetson hats, right? Yeah. So we got, like, an honorary spur. Something of the spur. I forget what it is. I'm sorry, the cab guys are going to grill me, man. (laughs) Uh, but no, these guys were. You're old. Your well, memory is gone. So these guys had already been there for, I don't know, four or five months, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was called. It was, what was it called? The Valley of Death. It, it was. You know, they had had. They had lost a lot of people. Yeah. They, the insurgents, had just about all the roads. I mean, I can remember going down a road and, and just going left to right, left to right, dodging potholes in the road that had that many IEDs go off. Were um, you driving? Or are you right? No, I was. And that's another thing too, like being in the back of a uh, of a vehicle. Sometimes 
you can't see out. You don't know what's going on. I You're mean, kind of just bracing for the, the impact Humvee, of a the Humvee Humvee doors are locked. There's no roll down windows, <laughs> so it's like you, you start to get engaged, and you know, the only way to shoot back is to get out, which is not always what you want to do. Right. And typically, when when we were doing a mission to support what we were trying to do, it wasn't like okay, we're going to engage and. You know, no, we, we did what we call cordon and knocks, which they would cordon off the village with their vehicles. And then we would go in the village. I would go in the village with the leadership. My team would. And the village elder would come out, meet with the commander of the unit I was with, because it's, you know, high, high-ranking high guy to high-ranking guy. And they knew all our rank and stuff. They knew everything. So, Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so they would, they would talk, and then we would talk, you know, and then, you know, if we said something, the c- captain would say, "Well, you need to talk to this guy here. He's my he's my guy. I want you to tell me what you tell him what you just told me, kind of thing." So and that's where we your always, team would come in. We always had to kind of be low profile, so you know we would want to walk up, you know, with our hands on our gun, our fingers just off the trigger, and all that kind of stuff. We typically, you know, slung and we had nine mils too, but we typically would sling our weapon around back and just so you know, just non confrontation. Yeah, yeah, type, just yeah. to show it's not you know not threatening. Just try to. Conflict and you know bring everything down to a level where we could just talk. Yeah, but then then that's where the the. Uh, but you're also putting yourself at risk because, yeah, if somebody in the village is posing or doesn't like you or whatever, I mean that's a free shot. Well, that's where your security comes in, right? So yeah. the thirty ACR guys, I mean, we didn't have to tell them what to do. They knew what to do. They deployed out, did three sixties around us, faced outward, scanning three sixty. Again, I can't say enough about. Uh, that squadron that we were working with down there, they were just, I mean, I never, I never, I can't ever remember being, being afraid when they were out with me. The only time I was afraid is we were sitting on a road one night, one afternoon, the sun was going down and I was just in the truck and I had my head up by the turret and I just got these spider senses that somebody was looking down a barrel <laughs> at something at me and, and it was just a weird feeling. Yeah. So I sat back down in the, in the vehicle, um, but yeah, I mean nobody's shot, but it was just you know, you get weird, those moments. Yeah, yeah, just a weird feeling. But that was really the only time. It wouldn't take long for my head to be outside of that thing for me to start feeling that way. I mean, you're like a duck. You're just sitting there, like all right, yeah. you know. And I mean, and are they are they bad? Like I hear they're horrible shots, but I assume some of them are probably pretty well, yeah. good. I mean, some of them are real, real well trained, which. You know, I always tell people it's like because all the mortars and stuff and rockets and stuff that you know, uh, Katusha rockets that land around you and stuff. It, it's uh, being an intel guy. I remember seeing this video that got captured somehow. I think it was one of the insurgents that took it. Of course, when we get people and well, we go to a scene, we, we collect all phones and stuff. But it was this guy who had who had wrapped a, a, a tube on a tree with like a rope or something, and somehow he was fine. Firing rockets out of this tube. What? Yeah, and it was like not stable or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do crazy stuff. They are the most ingenious people. Sometimes they come up with. They're, they evil. seem very resourceful. They they really can be, and you look at it, it's like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I look at that, and I'm thinking about all the rockets that are laying around me. I'm like, Lord, if I get killed by a rocket coming out mortar, of a tube, <laughs> please have the guy that shot it at me. Be the most well trained, 
mortar or rocket men in all of Iraq. You know, you don't he went, want to, it to be an accident. went to school in Russia, you know, was trained by, you know, Speznaz there, their special forces. And he knows what he's doing. He's got, you know, his own personal, you know, calibration kit or whatever. Yeah. And, but no, I don't want to be some, you know, getting killed out of a potato yeah, gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, not supposed to use the word haji, but you know, some some just random, you know, insurgent. Jocko calls him uh what does he call him? Schmoot. What does he call him? I don't know. Mooj. Mooj. Mujahideen. That's what he, he yeah. refers to as I guess the enemy. That's Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. So is that like Well the Mujahideen was actually the guys that end up, you know, later working with us because they fight in the Soviet Union. We were okay. giving them weapons and ammo and stinger rockets to uh, fight the Russians. You know, gotcha. Later on down the road, you know, they were warlords. I mean, you know, people don't understand how far back, you know, USA is like, you know, 1700s. So, but they go back centuries. There was no borders. There was no carving up of land, you know. Basically, it was warlords. I mean, yeah, you built you you built yourself up an army, and you went and raped and pillaged and took over the guys next to you, and until somebody came and did the same to you, right? You ruled that area, and a lot of that is just so ingrained in their culture. Uh, Iraq too, maybe just to a lesser degree, because to me, Iraq was a little bit more civilized. Yeah, but. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that's so ingrained in their culture, and it gets to the. You have to understand the, the tribal infrastructure of, you know, tribes, and whatnot, and how, that a lot of times supersedes any kind of government, that, the U.S. or whoever else stood up. Yeah. So yeah, when we talk about trying to, democratize these, civilizations. It's really, really, really hard. You think they want it? I think they want. I think they want the peace, of part of it. You know, the stable part of it. The rest of it, I don't think so. Yeah. So, what's the biggest culture difference between the United States and Afghanistan? Like, if you if you had to say, like, here's the five things that if you went over there, you'd be like, holy cow, this is crazy. I'm thinking toilet paper. Yeah, so, I mean, they, um, a lot of people, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, still, you have to realize that um, most, especially Afghanistan, is rural. I mean, these people are out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they live on the side of a mountain. And it gets cold as crap. It gets hot as crap in some areas. Um, well, you know, it's one thing I learned in Iraq, too. It's like, you know, a lot of these people, they just want to live. You know, they just want to get up in the morning and herd their goats or do whatever. Um, but also in that environment, they'll do whatever they have to do to survive. Yeah. Um, but they don't use toilet paper, right? Well, I, you Not know. Not all of them. It depends. If, yeah. there's, if there's running water and there's toilets, yeah, they probably use toilet paper. But otherwise, they're. Is it, it true they use a left hand to wipe in the. Is that was that a joke that no, I've heard? No. They actually do. Yeah, and they don't. Yeah, they don't use toilet. I can remember. I can remember in Iraq a guy coming out of a. So we had porta potties for the most part where I was. So I don't, there was maybe a few running toilets. I don't remember where they were, but 
a guy, one of our guys we were talking to, and of course he's got his, you know, his man dress. I forget, I forget what the name of that is. I try to forget most of this stuff anyway. <laughs> so, but he comes out of the porta potty, and, and so they they use water to wipe themselves. Yeah, that's why they use their hand to wipe yeah. themselves. Paper. They'll they'll get a bottle of water, and they'll go in there and they'll splash it around because you go in there after them, and there's there's water everywhere. There's water on the walls, <laughs> and you know I'm serious. Oh, the door and can't everything. be sanitary. Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> And then the guy comes out and he's like walking up to me while he's like wiping his hands. He's, he sticks his hand out like he wants to shake my hand. I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I, I don't want to knock them. I mean, it's just different. It's, yeah. it's, um, you know. And there's good people. There's lots of good people. There's a, there's a lot of good people. And, and again, some of the, some of the guys that I was working with that were helping us out and giving us information, um, they really, they really put their butts on the line for it. They really did, um, and they they did it because they believed that Iraq could be a better place to live. Yeah. So that and that kind of made us feel good sometimes while we were doing what we were doing. But it's like we were talking about. So something I want to talk about. Something I mentioned to you the other night when we were sitting outside. Um, kind of ticks me off about this whole ballot thing. Yeah. Right? Um, so people may or may not know. Our job as security force in Iraq and Afghanistan was a lot of times during elections to guard election precincts or place where people came to vote. Mm-hmm. So myself, on one occasion I remember in a vehicle sitting outside one of these places, pulling security for this, making sure somebody didn't drive up in a V-bit or something and blow the whole place up so people could vote. So a lot of Americans put our lives on the line, literally, and I'm sure some even died doing that to protect these people that we didn't even know in a land far, far away, some of which didn't want us there, didn't care for us there, would probably just assume kill us. But we provide them a safe place to come vote. And then when I see, come back here, and I hear, whether it's true or not, that somebody would even consider in this country to violate a ballot in any way, it's just, I mean, that's that's the fundamental crux of our whole democracy. And to see people even think about doing that. That's the one line you can't cross. You can't. Out of all that's the things the, in America, sacred, you cannot cross that yeah, line. That's the most, that should be the most sacred thing any American does. Right. Not only to vote, but to protect the vote, to protect the ballot, to protect the location. So, yeah, so when I, you know, <clears throat> hear people, you know, make light of or dismiss it being conspiracy theory and stuff like this. I'm like, this just ain't right, man. This is just not right. And um, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you're, if you're not adamantly for making sure the ballots are legal, all of them, I don't care which side, then as far as I'm concerned, you go live somewhere else. I'm serious. And we I can just, help you do that. We'll I mean, come I, help I, you I, back. I just don't. I just don't know why there's not more. Maybe there are. I, I'm sure there's a lot of. You know, vets that that have done the same thing I did, and said, "Well, when I wait a minute, this ain't right. I did it for these guys overseas, and nobody's doing it for us." Yeah. I mean, where's the DOJ? Where's, you know, where's law enforcement? Where's nowhere to be found? Homeland Security. I'm not. We're not, not protecting our ballots. You can't tell me in 2020 
we can't come up with a method. Yeah. To make these blockchain, things. dude. Well, I mean, I'm a true believer in blockchain technology. I think blockchain technology is is the answer to this exact issue. You talk about smart contracts, and I know I might be talking a little bit more. I'm talking about garage door guys, but I even see this being something for garage door guys. And so the idea behind blockchain and the smart contract is you can have two parties come to an agreement, right? right, with, With almost like an escrow type account. The terms of the agreement are in writing and inputted into the blockchain. Therefore, neither party can really screw the other, right? So let's say, for example, you're a garage door company and um, you sign a big builder, okay? One of the biggest fears for us is not getting paid if we sign a big builder who wants to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with us and have us go out and install a bunch of garage doors. What could happen is, and, and the banks kind of play a middleman in some cases, but you can still get screwed. But if all the money for the hundreds of garage doors that you've got to install goes into an escrow account, right, and it's managed by the blockchain technology, and essentially what happens is after you've fulfilled your obligation, you sign off on it, they sign off on it, and the funds are automatically deposited into your account, right? And there can be contingencies in there that are pre-structured and pre-built, uh, so that if, if uh, let's say, the builder's unwilling to sign off on it, maybe only 80% goes to you after completion if you provide proof or whatever, right? So long story short, uh, blockchain technology um, is, a, is a financial ledger, essentially, and it tracks and uh, protects the people receiving the money and the people sending the money. And smart contracts are built off of that technology, and uh, it's a great... It, I think it's a great way for us to do ballots. I think, you know, we could have uh, protected ballots that are uh, anonymous. That way people don't know who you're voting for. But it would be, I wouldn't say it's impossible to hack, but I would say it's yeah, highly yeah. unlikely that you're going to be able to hack into the blockchain and change results. Yeah, I don't remember. I used to have a bunch of Ripple. So that's not gonna <laughs> yeah. So my dad and I got into trading some uh, cryptocurrency. And he came out on the wrong end yeah, of that. Yeah, I invested way too much. Yeah, you did. I mean, it, I was shocked when you did it, but I was hoping you'd win big. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I had some Bitcoin and, and primary Bitcoin and Ripple. Ripple, to me, had, because I was focusing on the business case. Yeah. I wasn't focusing on what value does a Ripple coin bring being more than a penny. And after thinking about it a lot, and again, I'm not the strongest tech guy in the world. It just didn't make sense to me because a Ripple transaction is not based on the value of a coin. It, the, the, the coin value has nothing It's become to do. a commodity. It, it's just a way to do a transaction. There's, right. there's no, there's no financial, nobody has a financial incentive there's no dollar or anything like that backing it. Yeah. I it's mean, fictitious amount. It's doesn't, supply doesn't and matter. demand. I mean, if it's too unstable. Well, it's not that it's unstable. There's just, there's just, there, there's no intrinsic reason that value to value the coin to conduct a transaction. It, there, there's, it's just, it's just an intermediary. It could be a penny. It could be a dollar. It could be a thousand dollars. 
but it's only worth that value in the time when that money's in the middle and it's going from U.S. to, say, the peso for that period of time. There's no, you know, th- and that's what they were you know, trying to say with Bitcoin uh, because it's more of a st- store of value. Bitcoin's back up to what you bought it at, I think. So Did you see that? I heard it was up. <laughs> You're not better, are you? I think I sold my Bitcoin around 9,600. It, it stayed in around 9,000 for a long time. It's up there now. It dropped a little bit, but it's at 15 and some change now. Bitcoin's not going anywhere. No, no, and I, you know, um, I just got so fed up. I just want to get out. Yeah, altogether because that was an IRA I had, and I was kind of banking on that <laughs> long. T- I mean, I was just gonna let it sit there and grow, right? But yeah, it grows. It the tanked wrong way. hard when you yeah. uh, right after you went in. It, it t- yeah. So anyway, it went down to like four thousand dollars. So anyway, which I should have bought. At that I just point. Uh, yeah, there, there's got to be a way. I mean, again, the technology. I mean, it doesn't even have to be. It doesn't even have to be uh, crypto. Uh, you could. There's still technology. The thing about it is, I, I just sad to say, but I just don't trust anybody anymore. I yeah, that's fair too. Call, call it tin hat if you want to, but tinfoil hat. But yeah, it's just. Um, I think that, and I told you this the other day. Even I, and I'm again, I'm I'm a nobody. But I never dreamed it was kind of everything was kind of this corrupt, and you know I thought, well, yeah, the swamp. You know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of money and they're probably manipulating some stuff. But when you have the DOJ, the FBI, a lot of these agencies just go dark, turn a blind eye to everything. When, you know, when on the other side, every little conversation has been investigated. Yeah. If they would have let let them, Trump would have been impeached probably four or five times. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, if if some of that was valid to be investigated, fine. Yeah. But when there's stuff that's quote unquote on the other side, like the computer from Hunter Biden, there's there's thousands of things. Yeah. The emails they, from they just, Clinton. You know. It's just so that scares me, as an American citizen, that scares me. Yeah. Well, I think we need more people like um, Snowden who, you know. I can't comment on that. I know you probably can't. But what I would like to say is, you know, out of all the Americans, I think he's a patriot in my eyes. I mean, I know you shouldn't expose uh, our country, but at what price, at what point do you say, hey, dude, I'm looking out for the best of our country. And I'm going to expose this because we're doing the wrong thing. And here's the evidence. Yeah. Boom. Right. And then what's come out of that? Hardly nothing. Hardly anything. Double negative. I just did there. But um, so we'll wrap this up. Uh, you know, the one thing that keeps sticking in my head and probably because I've been reading that book, Extreme Ownership. Um, but you talk about team and you talk about this and we, we are a garage door industry podcast. You know, um, I think about sometimes, you know, our team here, Aaron Overhead Doors, uh, we can be pretty tight sometimes, and sometimes we can get into it with each other. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, we watch each other's back. And, and you know, I think um, if we could somehow uh, take our employees and 
instill some of the camaraderie and the leadership? Uh, how, in you, from your opinion, being in the military and then kind of trying to turn that into business, what are some things that you think we could do, or um, is it possible to kind of recreate that type of tightness uh, within a group? So let me go back real quick and touch base on something you brought up earlier uh, about cultural differences. So militarily speaking, you know, the the amount of training and stuff, we that's why a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, we have such large presence here. Uh, they basically want us to be their military. Um, and, and it's because culturally, you know, you know, boys come up and they play football, baseball, basketball, whatever sports, they get wrestling, they get involved in stuff, and it's competition. Um, they don't have that a lot overseas. There's not that, you know, um, like on the football field, you know, you, you get hit, and on the next play you're looking for that guy to hit you because right. you're going you're gonna to find a way to lay him out. Oh, one right? of your boys will. Yeah. So um, the, the, the vast difference between, and again, I'm not taking away, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of countries that have a lot of good special ops guys. They're they're really screwed away. And they're, I would I can't say on par. I would say close to on par to some of ours. But ours are uh, we have the. I mean, you talk Delta SEAL team, the elite of guys, the elite. Those guys are so badass. You won't even see them coming. I mean, they unless they want you to. They. I mean, I don't know how they do it. As many deployments as they do. Because, you know, they, they typically only deploy like three months. But when they're de- there, they're going out like every night. And, and they go out at night, like all the time. So And they're coming back, which is yeah. <laughs> even yeah. more crazy. Because they're going into hostile yeah. areas. They, they, they will, uh, yeah. They put hurt on a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah, just a vast difference between the gap between th- their special operations. And, and, yeah, we try to train up these other countries as best we can. Some yeah. of them. And there are a few that, that do really well, but by and large, they, there's just no comparison. So, I you know when it when it comes to me, um, and again, I wasn't special forces. You know, I was commissioned infantry lieutenant. But I mean, to me, the the biggest thing that sticks out to me is being able to go through adversity. And as I say in the military, you hear it say embrace the suck, because it gets really crappy. I mean, even if you're just you know a line guy like I was and stuff. I mean. You just do some stuff that, you know, makes you really uncomfortable. You're sleeping out in the rain. And I can remember sleeping on the side of the road one night. We were at Fort Benning doing this rough march. We stopped on the side of the road to sleep a couple hours. It was pouring down rain. You didn't have time to put up anything. I, I was under my poncho, and I was just trying to keep my face dry a little bit. Everything else was soaked, mud everywhere. You know, you pick up your ruck, and it's infested with fire ants. That's another story. But, yeah, it's just <laughs> – I mean, and that was just little stuff for me. But, I mean, right. you know, just, you know, these guys going out, the SEAL teams and stuff, I mean, just their training. I mean, you've seen videos about buds and stuff, right? Just nuts. But it's really – it's mind over matter. And that's and that's how I was able to do, you know, the Ironman at 56. I wasn't – I mean, I had tried to train for that, but I was traveling on my job. And so I was looking for a pool or a stationary bike or something. And, you know, the guys afterwards, oh, come on, let's go eat, you know, let's go have a drink yeah. or whatever, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, then I will. I'm like, you know, I get home, I'm like, dadgummit, I ate too much, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't in shape to really do that. And I got into the swim. I wasn't even going a mile. I'm like, screw it. I, I'm not doing this. 
and this good dude paddled up one of the, you know, aides on the water, paddled up in his little canoe. Said, hey man, what's your name? Got to talk to him. He goes, Hey, you can do this. I'm like, I'm like, No, nah, man, I don't know. He goes, Man, you still got time. You can do this. So he said, Look, I'll stay on your right. You side on because when you swim, you know, you lift your head up for yeah. water out of one side. You that's why I swim. So he said, Side on me. So you go straight. And he said, I'll stay on your right hand side, and we'll do this. Sure enough, I made it with like 20 minutes left before the cutoff. Wow. But I made it. And I'm like, crap, I, I just swam over two miles. And that was the first time I'd never, in my training, I'd never swam two miles. Yeah. So then I got on the bike. Of course, the bike's my, kind of my sweet spot. But still, it's 112 miles after doing a two-mile swim. Yeah. And then doing a full marathon after that. You're so lazy, bro. But, yeah, I, but, I mean, I, you know, I got two miles into the run, and my knee, my left knee just started, felt like somebody was just, hammering a spike through my knee. It hurt really bad. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I never had any problems with my knees before, but it's just you're always using different muscles. You know, you come off the bike, you get on the run, yeah. you different muscles. So anyway, um, I said, well, I'm just, I, I would I would jog until it hurt so much I had to stop, and then I would speed walk. And then I felt like I could run again. I would run again until it hurt so bad I had to stop. So I did that for basically, what, 22 miles-ish? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I came in with like, 40 minutes maybe left. I still am trying to figure out why you did all this. I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> like it's kind of like I want to go to Iraq, right? Stupid, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you, why you subject yourself to that? But I think I think once you once you do that a few times like like in the military just I mean just basic stuff really. Yeah. But the average person off the street is like, "Why well, I, I can't do that?" Well, you can you, if you put your mind to it. I think that's where Jocko, you know, I mean, they're the elite of the elite. They have to do that all the time. They have to do the, the mind over body stuff right. all the time. Like yeah, that dude it, that's coming out, re, uh, like writing all these books now where he was 300 pounds. He went in to sign up for the military and they laughed at him. I was like, bro, you got to be like, came in like a couple months later, whatever, six months. I don't remember what it was, but he was within the weight range. And now the dude's like doing all this stuff, grew up really poor and he wrote this book and he does these things that's just like, uh, he was having like kidney failure is like all his organs were shutting down. Oh, you're talking about, uh, he just kept guy, going. Right? Yeah. Seal light skin, black dude, yeah, seal yeah. guy. He just kept going. He's Goggins. like, dude, listen, my body's going to do what I tell it to do. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Just yeah. Goggins. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, yeah. And that's just it. I mean, some people have more of it than the other, but it's just, it's just mind. It's your mind. How strong is your mind? So embrace the suck. Embrace the suck. That's our message to all of our garage door guys out there. We know. And if you embrace this, hey, it's like a pastor said one time, hey, you want to bond with your family? Go camp, go camping yeah. for a weekend. It, all kind of things are going to fall apart. It's like I tell, like I tell Especially girls. Especially if we go with you. <laughs> exactly. Like I tell girls when they're talking about their wedding, they're like, oh, I just hope everything goes perfect. I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. Everything goes perfect. Nobody will remember your wedding. Right. You know, if a tree falls or the candelabra lights something on fire. They're going to be telling stories talk about of that, that forever. For years, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, you, it's just, it's just so as a team. I think, uh, you know, some of these team exercises that you can go on, you know, go out in the woods, whatever. Um, you remember Dante doing the yeah. the uh, toast at our uh, my first wedding? Vaguely. Oh, my God. That was so embarrassing. <laughs> he stood up on the table and had double fisting bottles of champagne. <laughs> Lucia! <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was a little bit fun. Yeah, anyway. I mean, uh, so some of the things you... You did in your days, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just that that bond that comes together when you 
when you go through adversity, basically, you know, and you and you and you have and, and as a team, you have to learn to to, to pick up each other. Yeah, you know, um, you got to reach over and grab a brother and pick him up and you know put him on your back or whatever you have to do. And then when people, other people on your team know that you'll do that, and you get cohesion like you ain't ever seen. Yeah. So that's it. Embrace the suck. Help each other out. I like it. Then you can go join the special forces if you're not a good garage door guy. <laughs> All right. Thank you for hey, listening. We great. love you guys. Dad, thank you for coming on. I know Thanks that uh, not all these conversations are super comfortable, but I uh, appreciate you coming on and talking about them. Thank you for your service and um, your sacrifice and everything you've done for our country. And, um, you know, mom, too. Yeah. She made a huge sacrifice yeah, as well. I think a lot of times – just for me seeing what mom's gone through over the last 20 years, um, 30, 15. 40, 15. You joined when I was two. Yeah. So it's been a long time. Anyway, long story short. So um, w- with all that being said, you know, I think we rec- we need to just make sure we recognize the women in the household too. Uh, and their sacrifice. So uh, anyway, listen, garage door guys, enjoy the suck. That's going to be your message for the Embrace day. Embrace the suck. Embrace the suck. Sorry. Uh, and have a good time. Enjoy. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hit me up on Facebook. If you got any comments, I'll pass them on to the old man. See ya.